Hello and welcome to Reactive Spin the Byline podcast. I am Evie Kiori and this is the last episode of our podcast for 2021. And since this year is wrapping up, we've also decided to wrap up with some of the topics that grasped our attention this past year. One of them, of course, was the COVID-19 pandemic that kept and keeps changing our lives since 2020. And to break down all the developments on COVID, I will speak frequently, I must admit, with Euractiv's health reporter, Gidre Pesetskite, who once more is updating us on COVID. So, Gidre, I wrap up. What is happening with COVID-19 now? Thanks, Evie, for having me on this uh last podcast this year um so actually um these past days and weeks were pretty eventful and i think um one of the main um news for us for european citizens is that we can choose now not only from uh four vaccines against covid-19 but we have the fifth one from the us biotech uh, firm novavax uh so the vaccine is called novaxovid And actually, it's the first um, protein-based vaccine. Um, and I think it's hoped that those who didn't get a shot yet, um, they will be more willing to get a shot because this is like more known technique. It's like a much more traditional vaccine platform. Um, and it's been used for about 30 years already. Um, and the most uh, known probably example is uh, the hepatitis B vaccine. It's also protein-based. Uh, so yeah, so this vaccine will work uh, as well. It will be two shots, um, uh, three weeks apart, and uh, the side effects are similar to the others, uh, like tiredness, pain in the injection sites, uh, muscle pain uh, was noticed. Um, so yeah, that's about the vaccine. And just before the year ends, we get new hope with this new vaccine. But what about the Omicron variant? This one is spreading really fast. Yeah, the new strain, Omicron, um, I think it really, um, I don't know, it feels like a new chapter every time with the COVID-19 and um, the strain opened the new one uh, just because uh, it spreads way more than the other uh, strains that we knew so far. Um, and uh, it really made uh, countries to rethink their restrictions and uh, uh, understand that maybe Uh, vaccination alone won't do the work. Uh, so there, there is need for social measures as well, like social distancing, masks. Uh, but also vaccines, uh, the ones that we have, um, might be not as effective. Uh, so, for example, there is need for the booster shot. And uh, uh, some vaccine companies are, as far as I know, like um, the ones that we have already authorized like Moderna, BioNTech, Pfizer, uh, Johnson Johnson are already trying testing their uh, vaccines um, to adapt them to Omicron. And everyone is afraid to lose the right of traveling. Uh, there is a rumor going around that we will need the third booster shot if we want the travel pass to be valid. What's new on that? Well, when the certificate was introduced, Um, there was no kind of validity date. Um, you, you get the you know, vaccination and then it's just valid for, uh, it seemed for infinity, but uh, uh, it was up to member states to decide. And um, now the commission, basically to harmonize this approach, um, uh, they announced uh, that as of uh, 1st of February, uh, the EU digital card certificate will be only valid for nine months. 
after the last dose of the primary vaccination cycle. Uh, so this means that for nine months, uh, once you get your full vaccination, you're fine. Uh, but after that, it expires unless uh, you get a booster shot. And once you have the booster, it's not yet clear uh, for how long it will be valid, um, the certificate. Uh, it's yet to be decided because, um, as the commission's spokesperson said, uh, it's like not yet known how long um, the protection will last. And speaking of COVID, one of the most interesting developments is the fines in Austria where unvaccinated citizens would have to pay 7,200 euros on fines if they wouldn't get vaccinated by February. To talk about it, I was joined by Oliver Noyan, who covers Austria for Euractiv and today has a new piece of information to add to the puzzle. Oliver, can you remind us very quickly what was it about and what's new? Last time we spoke, we um, were still talking about a draft regulation that was leaked um, by a newspaper. Um, this time around, uh, the actual bill has been passed, uh, about around two weeks ago, by the way. Um, so we now know um, there are a few changes to, to, to what the original draft intended. For instance, the fines are lower. So now we have fines of 3,600 euros instead of 7,200. So it's been a little bit watered down um, from... Um, this kind of perspective, but other than that, like like um, it more or less stays the same. Austria has introduced um, compulsory vaccinations for all, like um, for every for every resident above the age of fourteen, with some exceptions like um, pregnant women and so on, and people who have some certain health issues. And um, the mandatory vaccination um, will start with the first of February. So from that point on. Um, everybody has to be vaccinated, and those who don't comply with 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 the compulsory vaccination will get fined at a certain point with um, three thousand six hundred euros. And what are the reactions so far? Also, when it comes to the political stability of the country, in Austria, basically for weeks, um, we have mass demonstrations almost every um, every weekend in all of the major cities. There are huge repercussions, and especially the the right wing populist um, FPÖ, the Freedom Party, is is kind of trying to to draw political capital from the situation by aligning them with the anti-vaxxers and saying um, that Austria is a dictatorship now because we have compulsory vaccinations and those kind of things. So it's like a huge divide in 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 the society, and we can really see that that um, the the Corona issues really. Um, dividing societies even more, especially when it comes to compulsory vaccinations. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. Now, another prominent issue on the EU agenda was climate. A busy year with many decisions and changes. And to talk about it, there is no one better than Euractiv's environment and energy reporter, Kira Taylor, who spent hours breaking down for us the new decisions and legislations. So, Kira, what happened this year? So this year has been one of the busiest, if not the busiest years in climate policy. We've seen multiple legislative packages of energy and environment laws published by the European Commission. Uh, while a lot of these are revisions of previous legislation, there are also a lot of new proposals that have come out. 
So over the last couple of years, we've seen EU policymakers realise that they need to act on climate change. That's a response to pressure from society to tackle global warming. What's happened this year is the beginning of the huge drive to bring Europe in line with its ambition to reach net zero emissions by mid-century. Whether Europe is doing enough for that is, is still to be seen, really. But for a quick recap of what happened this year, so we had the agreement between EU countries and the European Parliament to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. That was quite a long time ago, but somehow it was still this year. Then we had the Fit for 55 climate package in July. That started the revision process of several EU laws and proposed some new ones in line with that ambition to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55%. And this month we've had what you could call Fit for 55 Part 2, or what is otherwise known as the gas package. That focused on reforming Europe's gas market in line with Europe's climate ambition and promoting building renovation. That's really key if Europe wants to meet its green ambition. So this year has really been about the Commission drafting and proposing legislation, some of which has seen wide support, some of which has really not seen that much support. And what about next year? Uh, next year is going to be the year when we see what the European Parliament and EU countries think of that legislation. We've seen a bit of that in meetings of energy and environment ministers. We can certainly already see what they don't like. The proposal to put a carbon price on road transport and buildings comes to mind when we think about what is really controversial. But next year is going to be the year where the parliament and countries have to find a common position on these files. And looking at how it's going at the moment, that is going to be very difficult and very interesting to watch. We also covered economy stories with the help of our economy and jobs editor, Janos Aman, who put the effort not only to inform us about the latest news on the field, but also to make comprehensive terms like international tax regime. Janos, remind us once more, what is the international tax regime about? This year, after a lot of years where countries debated the problem of corporate tax evasion, where companies just find the, the lowest tax jurisdiction and try to shift all their profits there to tax that, there was finally an agreement on, on an international level um, mainly championed by the U.S. and the, the European countries um, to, to put a stop to this uh, profit shifting. And they did that by agreeing to two um, pillars, they call it, of, of, a, of a reform. The first pillar says that countries should, uh, can, highly profitable big companies can now or have to allocate part of their taxes to uh, jurisdictions where they actually have their income from. So, uh, for example, Apple cannot only um, pay taxes in, in the US where it is based, but it has also has to pay taxes in countries where it uh, generates its revenue. Um, and the, the second part is a global minimum tax of 15%. It's the so-called Pillar 2. And uh, it agreed that no country should go uh, below these 15% uh, of corporate taxes. And if at some place, uh, some parts of the company in some country are taxed below this, the other countries can actually um, adjust their taxes so that in total, the effective tax rate is at 15%. So that was basically the agreement. And what are the latest developments on it? 
just uh, on Wednesday, the EU Commission has announced the directive by which it wants to implement the minimum tax, so part two of this whole arrangement um, in the EU. Uh, there is still some uh, reluctance by some member states regarding this. Um, and at the same time, there might also be some, some setbacks because the, the, the first pillar where um, taxing rights are reallocated is, is not quite clear whether it goes on, uh, how it develops in the US. Because, for example, if the US uh, will not um, implement this tax, it does not really make sense for the EU to to implement their side, or, or they don't get what they really wanted. Um, so there will be a lot of um, discussions about the implementation, and just because everybody or a lot of uh, countries agreed in principle on this arrangement, it is not yet clear that it will be actually implemented. Now, we always like to wander on different EU capitals uh, that your active covers, And one of the most controversial stories coming from the capitals was the rage of the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis when he was asked about the pushbacks in the Aegean. Now, to shed some light on this story, I talked to Matthew Tsimitakis, who is covering Greece for Euractive. Matthew, what is new on this story? So after Ingeborg Brigel, the Dutch journalist uh, clashed with Prime Minister Mitsotakis during a press conference in early November, Brigel Uh, called Mitsotakis a liar uh, for uh, denying that there's pushbacks in the Aegean. Uh, actually, she gave the opportunity to Mitsotakis to admit the inhuman refugee policy and indeed to defend it. A few days later, the Greek Prime Minister found himself in London where he talked about an obligation to protect Europe's external borders. Mitsotakis warned that if you don't send a clear message that you're protecting your borders, then more, pe more people will try to enter Greece illegally. This rhetoric became mainstream uh, at the Belarusian border when uh, Lukashenko weaponized refugees and the Europeans responded by talking of a hybrid war. The Border Violence Monitoring Network, uh, a network of NGOs and associations mainly based in the Balkan regions and in Greece, that, uh, who monitor human rights, Uh, they uh, also collected 36 different stories of pushbacks uh, related to at least uh, 1,000 people uh, moving in the Balkans. Now, it seems that the, uh, the, the, the countries of the European Union uh, are systematically using violence against people at the borders. We should remember like how Charles Michel, um, the president of the European Council, Uh, did talk about the possibility of um, funding fences with, um, uh, from the European budget. Um, there was also another case that was um, uh, published a, a little bit later with, um, uh, in which Ilva Johansson said it was a very serious one when uh, an employee of Frontex, a Frontex employee, uh, said that he was violently pushed by Greek um, guards, um, border guards, to, uh, to Turkey because they thought that he, he was an asylum seeker. Um, now, um, uh, Johansson said that uh, despite his personal uh, story, this was not an isolated case, but it was a serious matter. Um, and then the Greek government responded with um, the Ministry of Migration 
uh, ordering a committee to to see on the issue of pushbacks, but not many people think that this would actually give any meaningful results. Um, on the contrary, uh, Minister Mitarakis uh, said that uh, the country's policy in regards to migration is uh, strict and tough, but but fair. And the Pope visited Greece and the refugee camps uh, recently. Do we have any action taken when it comes to the pushbacks? Uh, Pope Francis' uh, visit to Lesbos was the second one. The first one was in 2016, and uh, actually he was touching because exactly he had the courage to touch upon issues that no politician in Europe dares to talk about at this point, speaking the language of truth, uh, which is that uh, pushbacks are now a regular policy in, in the European Union. 35 NGOs sent a letter uh, asking him to intervene, and he actually did it uh, by uh, making some very strong and some very bold statements. Uh, he talked about fences, uh, that uh, are being raised against people who are uh, seeking for uh, freedom, um, uh, brotherhood, uh, and help. And he wished that um, uh, uh, the European Union wakes up from this uh, situation. Um, now, the great position is that uh, the, the problem starts from the denial of most European countries to accept uh, to take refugees as it was agreed back in 2016. And that makes Greece a buffer zone and Turkey as well, uh, uh, or what we call here like a storehouse of, of, of souls. Uh, however, the problem in Greece and most countries where there's a flow of migrants and refugees, especially in the external border of the European Union, is clear. Pushbacks are illegal as they're depriving people from fleeing wars or disasters from exercising their human right to ask for an asylum. Uh, what most uh, legal experts would agree upon is that these people should be given the right and then they could be deported. Well, our time is up for this week. I am Evikiori and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next year. Until then, enjoy your holidays, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening and happy holidays. <laughs>